Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, December twenty-second episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and on social media via Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com. Or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Laura Tohi, with whom I will be discussing her poem "Moth Madness" and my poem "Wish Fulfillment." Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry events taking place during the week of December 23rd. On Tuesday, December twenty-fourth, from eight to eleven p.m., King Kong will be hosting his the Underground Experience at La Flor de Calabaza, which is at seven o five North First Street, Suite one ten in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at eight p.m. On Thursday, December twenty-sixth, from six to nine p.m., Fatso's Pizza will be hosting his weekly open mic night at thirty-one thirty-one East Thunderbird Road in Phoenix. From eight to eleven p.m., Quinton Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic night at Jobot Coffee and Bar, which is at three thirty-three East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at seven p.m. From nine forty-five p.m., Atlas Saint Cloud will be hosting his weekly poetry writing workshop at the Welcome Diner at nine twenty-nine East Pierce Street in Phoenix. On Friday, December twenty-seventh, from six to ten p.m., Sozo Coffee House will be hosting its open mic night at nineteen eighty-two North Elma School Road in Chandler. And now, let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Laura Tohi. Hi, Laura. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you for having me. Of course, you brought with you the poem "Moth Madness." Before you read that for us, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, I'll introduce myself in the Navajo language.、Please. Okay,、uh, Laura Tohi and she had sent a happy language to the Chitney Bashes team at a Navajo Nation poet laureate language. The Arizona State University, the Banach Nation, the professor Nishlin, the Kate Besos at Banco Oho and the Shenanish Ashim, a Koto E Asanishle. So I, this is my introduction in、mm-hmm. Navajo language, since that was my first language.、Mm-hmm. I am the Navajo Nation Poet Laureate from 2015 to 2019.、Mm-hmm. I used to be a professor at ASU, Arizona State University.、Mm-hmm. And I retire, and I'm doing my own work now.、Mm-hmm. Things that I put off for many years that I can pursue now.、Mm-hmm. I have two sons, and that's how I define myself as a woman.、Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. In terms of poetry, how did you come to write poetry? You know, I didn't really know what poetry was because I was never introduced to it when I was growing up and going to school.、Mm-hmm. I probably didn't learn about poetry until maybe I was in high school.、Mm-hmm. I know in one of the classes that I took when I was in high school, we read *The Pilgrim's Progress*,、mm-hmm. and I was fascinated by that because it was all oral stories, and I could relate it to Navajo stories that I had heard. So I was very fascinated by that, and that it was in a book that we could actually read.、Mm-hmm. But as far as poetry, 
I think it was probably in high school I read Edgar Allan Poe, mm -hmm. who has written some poems, but I didn't really understand what poetry was about. Mm -hmm. It was a mystery to me. Mm -hmm. and I got into college and then I s took other classes and read poetry. So it was really probably more in college that I got a more thorough introduction as to what poetry was and what it does and so forth. Mm. Was there a particular event that made you decide, I'm going to go start write poetry? How do you remember specifically what led you into that? Since, you know, from high school to college, you didn't really feel very interested. Yeah, I think it was because in the 1970s, when I was in college at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, mm -hmm. there were some activists that came mm -hmm. to talk to the students, and I went to those talks. and. I remember one of the speakers that came was Simon Ortiz, mm -hmm. and he had just published one of his books, it might have been his first or second book of poetry. I was fascinated by that and what he was talking about because what he was writing about was colonialism. I did not know the definition of that word. Mm -hmm. And he really didn't use that word, if I remember correctly, but it's just that whole experience of colonialism and how I saw myself as part of that, mm -hmm. and how he was writing about this as a poet made me want to write too. Mm -hmm. I was also taking another class, actually it was the first class I ever took in American Indian literature, and one of the students at the university was Joy Harjo, mm -hmm. who's you know the U.S. Poet Laureate now, and she came to our class, I mean we, we all know each other, and she came to our class and she read some of her poetry. Mm -hmm. And that inspired me, too, because I started to see, you know, these are Native people writing poetry, things that I can relate to, things mm -hmm. that are important to me, things that I felt, and, you know, some of the experiences that they were talking about, I felt like were part of mine. Mm -hmm. And I think it was from that I started writing poetry, but I was not confident, really, to show it to anyone. Mm -hmm. I had such a lack of confidence in myself. I just felt like, why would anyone want to read anything I wrote? Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of writing in secret, you know, I was mm -hmm. like a closet poet. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did show it to one of my professors, and he made some comments. Mm -hmm. It didn't instill in me to want to do anything more with it, so I didn't mm -hmm. really write any more poetry until after I graduated from college. Mm -hmm. And what made you pick it back up then? Well, I uh, took a class in fiction writing with Rudy Anaya. Mm -hmm. He was teaching a fiction class, and I remember the first assignment was write a story that begins with Once Upon a Time. Mm -hmm. And the only story I could think of was the one that my mother had told me while we were in the car mm -hmm. driving from Crystal, New Mexico, which is where we lived, to Gallup, New Mexico, where we did our shopping and so forth. And I just remember that story so well. So I wrote that story, mm -hmm. and he really liked it, and he said, I'll bet you have a lot of stories from your community. Why don't you write some of those stories? Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that's... Incredible, because I had never thought about that. Because mm -hmm. growing up, I always read stories written by non-Native peoples. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, how could I be a writer? Because I wasn't reading any Native poets or writers. That was totally out of my experience in school. And when he said that, this light went on in me. And I thought, 
I'd never thought about that. So mm. I started doing that. So I wrote some more things. So then I started writing poetry. I just started writing short things. Mm. Rudy Anaya was actually my first teacher that opened this door for me into this writing life that I've mm. since been living in. He invited me to a poetry reading and he said, why don't you read your story that you did for class? So I did that. And then, mm -hmm. then I read some more poems that I had written. But all the time I was so nervous, you know, just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, and I think this is a common experience yeah. for beginning writers mm -hmm. is you go to in front of an audience and you feel like you're naked standing there, mm -hmm. you know, just expressing yourself and it just revealing yourself and your mm -hmm. thoughts through mm -hmm. your writing. And that's what I felt. After that, I had a little bit more experience in what it was to be a writer. So after that, I started writing more. I had been living at the Albuquerque Indian School from ninth grade to high school. I lived there, but I went, went to the public school in mm -hmm. Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about what that was for me as a mm -hmm. young girl. And I started thinking about poems about that. So I started writing this poem because I took another class and the assignment was to write a poem about prison because mm. there was a, had just been a prison riot in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. The instructor said, write what it would be like to be in prison. And I had no idea what that was like. Mm -hmm. The only thing I could relate it to was the Indian school, mm -hmm. the, the one in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this poem called No Parole Today. Mm -hmm. That's what started me off on writing a longer book length of poetry on living at the boarding school and what mm -hmm. it was like through a young girl's eyes. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Mm -hmm. So once that got going in me, then there was no turning back, you know. Then I, <laughs> <laughs> it's you like know. turning on a faucet, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah. And you know, all these poems and stories that were stored in me started coming out. Right. Wow. It's amazing how encountering the right mentor could do that for us, right? Yes, I think that's so important. And I think that's one of the things I tell younger writers is try to find a mentor, either a teacher or someone who's a writer or someone who's interested in your work, you know, mm -hmm. or even could be a friend or a classmate or somebody, you know, because mm -hmm. for me that was so essential in making me feel like I did have something to say. Mm-hmm. Well, earlier you had mentioned that the Navajo language, what is it called exactly? Is it just called the Navajo language or is it called Dine? Is it... We call ourselves Dine, which means mm -hmm. the people, mm -hmm. but we've also been called Navajo. Mm -hmm. So probably most people would be more familiar with the term Navajo. Mm -hmm. But uh, we say, if we're talking about our language, we would say Dine, the Zad. Okay. And, which means the people's language. Okay. Yeah. So if we say Navajo language, then it's the same thing. Okay. Okay. So you spoke of Diné uh, Biza as your first language, and um, I see in the poem that you brought with you today that you use some of the words from it. But have you written pieces that are predominantly in in that? Yes. Um, I have, and I'm starting to do more of that now. I wrote some poems about rain a few years ago, and uh, I was taking classes at Diné College in Salie, mm -hmm. Arizona, because I felt as a, as a writer, 
I wanted to be literate in my own language. Mm -hmm. So I took classes during the summer for three years in a row in order to learn how to read and write my own language. Mm -hmm. So while I was there, I wrote a few stories and I had uh, translated a few of my poems. But I didn't do much with it after that until recently when another Navajo poet, Sherwin Bitsui, was curating a month of poetry on the poets.org website. Mm. And he asked me to submit a work completely in Navajo. Mm. And I didn't really have any that mm. I wanted to submit. So I wrote this poem about this art installation mm. and sent that to him and he selected it. Mm -hmm. And it was read about a week ago. Okay. The Navajo language has been designated as a vulnerable language. Mm -hmm. It's not quite designated as the level of it's imperatively that it's going to disappear. Mm -hmm. But we see those some of these signs that it could be designated to the next level. But right now we are vulnerable. And so I feel like as a writer, I want to write poems in Navajo mm -hmm. because it is my first language and I want to express myself in that language and also I want to have poems written for Navajo speakers mm -hmm. and also for the next generation of, of Navajo people who would learn the language. I think it's really important. So I've been doing more of that mm -hmm. lately. Okay. From what I'm understanding from what you said, the Navajo language is, is not one of the indigenous languages that was forced to spot, stop and then picked up again. It's been continuous. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up because it was the U.S. government's policy in the 19th century when the first boarding schools and parochial schools were set up mm -hmm. in the U.S. all over. The first boarding school was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania mm -hmm. by Richard Henry Pratt, and it was his belief that the way to, quote, save the American Indian was to assimilate Native mm. peoples into the mainstream society. And he felt that the way to do this was to take away all Native identity, mm. including the language, mm -hmm. and to require students to learn English, become Christianized, mm. take their, cut their hair, remove their clothing, give them American-style clothing, you know, a complete... Which is European. Yes, based. right, exactly. <laughs> and in my book, uh, No Parole Today, there's a quote by Richard Henry Pratt who says that he believes that the way to assimilate Native people is to immerse them into uh, white mainstream society until they are thoroughly soaked and that thoroughly soaked is, is what he actually said, mm -hmm. and then to bring them back up. So, you know, this image or this metaphor is of a baptism, yeah. you know, into white culture, and then this Navajo, or this Native person then would become, you know, like everyone else. That was the belief that was thought that that's the way to save Indians. <laughs> but what happened is that that did not work out, right. you know, as Native peoples in this country, we are still recovering from that. Yeah. So our languages were the first to go. Students that went to these schools, and I went to one 
at Crystal, New Mexico in the late mm -hmm. 50s. And if we were caught speaking Navajo language, we were punished for it, mm -hmm. which usually meant our hands getting slapped by a ruler or, mm -hmm. you know, your mouths were washed out with soap in some schools. And mm -hmm. it was really a way to try to just completely eradicate the language. Mm -hmm. So I went to one of those schools. The ironic thing is that in World War II, mm -hmm. these young Navajo Marines were asked to devise a code using the Navajo language, mm -hmm. which they did, and it was used in the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. It was an accurate language, it was quick, and it saved many American lives. So the Navajo language is a powerful language mm -hmm. in that way, too. The language today, just from my own lifetime, when I went first started school, all the students in my class spoke Navajo, and some maybe spoke a little bit of English. So I interpreted for some of these kids because I was also bilingual. I had learned English at home too. Mm -hmm. And now it's the opposite where if you go to a school on the reservation, you would probably find more English speakers than there are Navajo speakers. Mm -hmm. But then we do have immersion schools on the reservation mm -hmm. in some of the schools now. Mm -hmm. So our language really is in some ways diminishing Mm -hmm. and, but we are aware of that, and so the Navajo Nation has instituted programs to try to save the language as much as possible. It's believed that by the end of the next century, 7,000 languages will have been lost. And that's a very dire statistic, but mm -hmm. uh, that seems to be happening you know, throughout this country, and actually all over the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of indigenous people all over the world who are being marginalized to extinction. Yes. You told me about this uh, London event that you went to. People from different indigenous nations mm -hmm. come and recite their art in their own language. Yes. Uh -huh. I was in London last month at the South Bank Poetry event. 2019 is the year of indigenous languages. Mm -hmm. So as part of that, the poetry center there wanted to have an event in which there would be a publication of poems that were endangered. I, think, I believe it's called Endangered Poetry. Mm. At this poetry reading, I was reading with people from the Middle East, Australia, South America, and I was from the U.S., mm. and I think there was someone from Canada. Mm. And the theme, as I was listening to these other writers, was genocide. Mm. And that's what many of the poets were writing about, which it's understandable why languages can become extinct because of genocide. Yeah. And you had talked about the recovering from these boarding schools. I guess now is the time to ask you to read your poem because it does talk about some of the traditions. Mm -hmm. It carries that tradition within the poem itself. Mm -hmm. So would you like to read that for us? Yeah. I also include in my poems words or phrases sometimes that comes from the Navajo language. So this poem is called Moth Madness, and our word for moth is ichahi. And that translates to the behavior of a moth, because moths, you know, are attracted to light, mm -hmm. and to their peril, they will jump into the light and mm -hmm. destroy themselves. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, my grandmother, who was a weaver, used to tell us stories about water and I remember she was talking about moths one day and telling us don't behave like a moth you know because mm -hmm. I was 
my cousin and I, we were probably 12, 11 or 12 years old, and she would tell us these sort of these cautionary tales <laughs> about, you know, certain kinds of behavior. Being and, a good grandmother. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and she was, because many of the things that she told me became topics for some of the poems I've written. Mm. So there's another word in here, the glittering world. The glittering world is the world that we are currently inhabiting. There was mm. believed that were four other worlds before this one, and we are now have moved into the glittering world. Mm. Okay, Moth madness. Moth circles the kerosene lamp on the floor that sheds a dim light on our night work. My cousin and I keep carting the woolly clumps, twigs and dirt that clung to the sheep from their wanderings among sagebrush and thistle drop into our laps. We card and card to transform them into layers of soft clouds for Nala Spindle, my paternal grandmother. Each ahi, says Nala, almost in a whisper, like she was afraid to stir the name, like the name might release something formed from night. Each ahi, the word flutters in the shadows and cautions against all that's unbalanced in the glittering world. The reckless, the violators, the amoral, evil floating all around that must be righted with songs and prayers. Bahatzit, she exclaims, no longer whispering. Harsh cautions against a suicidal jump into the fire. I would learn what it means to yearn for the fire burning in a stranger, the kurufudra that matched my own moth madness. Nala's spindle tilted like the earth's axis that she spins against her thigh. Clouds of wool transform again into strands of color for her loom that becomes her world. She calls the earth and sky. She calls stories of female mountains. She calls stories of male mountains to her geometric designs to balance the world against the moth madness. Thank you. I see you, you have here a copyright this year. Is this something that you wrote this year? Yes. Uh -huh. okay. I was talking about before you read this about recovering from generations, being forced to go to boarding schools, being forced to erase your identity, being told over and over again by action as well as words that your identity is not worthwhile. And as a result of that, in our modern world, we see some of the fallout from that in terms of indigenous peoples and the diseases that they face, mm -hmm. um, such as alcoholism or poverty, extreme poverty, mm -hmm. and also the death of countless women and girls, mm -hmm. disappearances. I don't know if you intended to be that as well in your poem, that it's reflected in this poem in terms of there's a self-destructive element after being attempted to be destroyed by other people. Sometimes the pain is so great that the only thing you can do is to destroy yourself to stop from feeling it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's something that I'm just reading because I know some <laughs> of the history or because it's actually in that. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that's an interesting read. I wasn't really thinking about that, but I can see the connections now that, you know, you express that. One of the things that I realized as I was writing this poem is when my grandmother's, and my mother was also a weaver too, when I'd see them weaving, I'd see them creating these designs, and they were always geometric designs. Mm -hmm. Geometric designs, if you hold them up to a mirror, they can be have mirror images of themselves. Mm -hmm. So they were always in these, many of these Navajo weavings, especially the more traditional ones, they always have these geometric shapes in them. And so what it means is there's order, there's stability mm -hmm. in these shapes. And I'm relating that to the mountains that my grandmother was calling, you know, the mountains, the strength of the mountains. Our word for mountains is tzith, which means strength. Mm -hmm. And the mountains, I think, in some of the traditional poems I've read by a um, Navajo medicine man and by other poets is it represents a stability. Mm. It represents a philosophy that helps inform how to live as it's given to Navajo people that the mountains are sort of this protection of these in these four different directions. Mm. So if you have this protection, you have to have something that's stable, something that's strong, mm. something that you can look up to. You know? mm. And so when I was writing this poem, it, it suddenly made me realize is this what Navajo weavers were doing, you know, mm -hmm. as they were creating these rugs and these designs that mm -hmm. they were actually trying to make the world stable, trying to make mm -hmm. the world a place where there was stability. Mm -hmm. I just thought, you know, is that what my grandmother was doing? And if that's what the weavers were doing, and they were creating a ceremony mm -hmm. in their weavings, because, you know, weaving helps to create harmony and uh, it helps to transform the world, and it helps as, to heal, mm. and it does a lot of things. So the ceremony is occurring as my grandmother was weaving. She was creating a ceremony in her Navajo weaving. And so that's why I saw that, you know. That, but the part about um, what you mentioned, the destruction, the self-destruction, yeah, I think, you know, there's this contrast between what a, a moth does mm and what my grandmother was doing, mm -hmm. you know, the moth going crazy and jumping into the fire. And I mentioned, there's one line, it's a French expression, mm -hmm. uh, coup de foudre, mm -hmm. which is struck by lightning, mm -hmm. or, you know, so I was sort of relating that, of how a person can be struck by another person, even a stranger, mm -hmm. and sort of go off this path that the grandmother was trying to build, you know, trying to yeah. create for this girl, and she goes off, off of that by being struck by this stranger. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, so I think there's these two comparisons that are happening in this poem. So I felt like that my grandmother was really doing something more than just creating design. She was actually doing a ceremony. Mm -hmm. I think recently weaving, people are bringing back weaving. Um, not necessarily in the American indigenous tradition, but weaving in general as some kind of therapeutic tool because the repetitive motion is very calming in many ways, and people can just get lost in it. Yeah. When I was growing up, I listened to my grandmothers, and they were all weavers. Mm -hmm. 
my mother and my aunt, and uh, I even had a brother that was a weaver. And just listening to that rhythm of the tamping of the wool onto the design, just it's a very rhythmic sound, you know, mm. just tap, 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 tap. Almost like a typewriter. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's just this constant rhythm, you know. It is lulling and it is kind of a therapy because it's, it's just this evenness and you're just listening to just that sound and it's really kind of comforting to know that, you know, that the grandmother is there working and everything's okay, you know. Yeah. There's a certainty to it right? because there's a certain amount of taps before the returning yes. of the loom. It's interesting that you mention symmetry because we humans, as with all animals, we find that health is reflected in our symmetry. How we judge beauty is by how symmetric people are. So it's interesting that the Navajo people's tradition of weaving these symmetric patterns also finds like beauty in that symmetry mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. And I, I heard three and four are very significant numbers. I don't know if it's true with Navajo people as well. Four. Four, mm -hmm. yeah. So very, very, again, very symmetric numbers. Yes. Very, like, stable number. Yes. Uh -huh. yeah. there a lot of things come in fours, like the four sacred mountains, the four directions, the four mm -hmm. colors. There's a lot of things that um, are centered around that number four. Just like in other cultures, there yeah. are sacred numbers like yeah. 12 or 7 yeah. Yeah. or 3. Like I always used to talk to my students about that and you know, ask, well, what's, what's a, a significant number in Western culture? We think of all the things you can think of and we'd say the three little pigs, the three billy goats gruff, the three stooges, yeah. <laughs> the trinity. trinity yeah. 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 I remember hearing and also reading that line of the, the coup de photo and thinking there is, because it's the grandmother, it kind of made me think of Little Riding Hood a little bit because it has that sort of right passage, the puberty and falling in love with a stranger who might take you on a beautiful journey but also might destroy you, mm -hmm. that possibility. But it's only like in one line, right? and it's as the coup de foudre, as fast as it occurs, it kind of goes away. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that something you had in mind that the that love, that just love between two people? Well, I don't know if it was a love, I think it was just being struck mm. by this stranger, I guess, yeah. Mm. And yeah, so it was very, like, very quick, and yeah, I think that quickness like a lightning striking very quick, you know, and then it's gone, yeah. And what inspired you to write this particular poem? Well, I had started this poem, it was called Moth Madness, because I was reading, um, there was a title for a book that had that Moth Madness in there. It was about the kinds of illnesses mm -hmm. that are prevalent among Navajo people. Mm -hmm. Someone had written a book with uh, some like hand trembling and moth madness and something else. You know, mm -hmm. it was kind of a long title. And just that moth madness struck me. And I thought, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's kind of intrigued me, you know, mm -hmm. moth madness, what is that, you know? And so it just took me back to the memory of my grandmother talking about these moths and 
So I started writing about that, but it didn't seem like it was really going to go anywhere. But it's, So I just kept working at it and working at it. Finally, when I got to the part where she was weaving, mm-hmm. then it's when I realized that's what the poem is really about. Mm. It's about weaving and creating symmetry in the world against all this uh, craziness that's happening in the world, mm-hmm. especially even now. Yeah, especially now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really, the poem revealed itself to me that this is what I needed to write about. And mm-hmm. the more I went in, down that path, then I knew what I had to write. Mm-hmm. I was really happy at the end of the poem that that's how I, that I found the poem. Mm-hmm. And it was just saying, this is what you need to write about. and Because I, I think that writing is alive. Mm-hmm. You know, any kind of writing we do in our voice, our human voice, gives it life. Mm-hmm. So, and I finally got towards the end, and then I knew what I had to do, and then the part about the act of weaving became a ceremony, and that's when I started to realize uh, that's what the poem was asking me for, was mm-hmm. to put it in that context. Mm-hmm. Do you mind explaining some of these words? No, Nala. Nala, you have mentioned as your grandmother. Yes, my uh, paternal grandmother. Mm-hmm. And but the words that she actually says. Oh, Ichahi is the moth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And this warning that she. Yeah, that's the warning. And what it really means is like frightful. Oh. Frightful. Okay. You know, warning. Frightful. You know, that's what she's saying. And how do you say that? Bahatze. Yeah, that's pretty good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at this, and those words appear at the beginning of a line. I think I did that because I wanted to call attention to just that word and how it plays out in the poem. Mm-hmm. You talked about female mountains and male mountains. Mm-hmm. What's the differentiator? Well, in the Navajo worldview, everything is in terms of dualities. Mm-hmm. And so we have things like male, female, Mountains, rain, homes, mm-hmm. there's uh, songs, prayers, but we also have dualities like north and south, east and west, mm-hmm. light and dark, life and death, mm-hmm. and so forth. You know, so the Navajo worldview is positioned along that. And so as human beings, you know, we all have uh, maleness and femaleness mm-hmm. in us. And so we constantly have to keep ourselves in balance spiritually. Mm-hmm. And so when you become unbalanced spiritually, that's when certain kinds of prayers and ceremonies need to be uh, done for you. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, there's this, this recklessness, this evil, this imbalance that's, you know, floating around in the world. And so all of that has to be right. It has, harmony has to be maintained throughout your life. When you become unbalanced, uh, then you have to rebalance yourself with a ceremony. Mm-hmm. Ceremonies involve prayers and songs and, and other things like that. Do you think these songs and prayers, especially in terms of the modern world today, <laughs> or even in traditional times, in your tradition, do you find that it allows space to reflect? Or do you think the songs and prayers themselves are the medicine? I think it's um, probably both. 
When I've gone to ceremonies in which songs and prayers were sung, the medicine man will start out, you know, singing, and he invites you to sing along, and you don't have to know the song, but, you know, because there's a lot of repetition and the song can go on for a long time, you sort of catch on mm-hmm. to the rhythm and to some of the, the words and the prayer. And I think the way it works for, at least for me, is it transports me, I think, into another consciousness mm-hmm. through sound. And when that happens, then the present world that you are in, the modern world, you know, mm-hmm. you're in the cars and cell phones and so forth, that seems to just not be there, and your consciousness is in another realm. Mm-hmm. So your mind actually goes, you know, to another place. Mm-hmm. That mind is also how I think healing takes place for yourself, because if you participate in a ceremony, I think mm-hmm. it's healing for yourself. But it's also healing for the patient, because everyone that's there is experiencing the same thing through the songs and the prayers. So all our thoughts are really about healing for the patient. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you know, we're all there for the purpose of helping to heal the patient. But I think also in that process, we're also, uh, in a sense, healing ourselves and putting ourselves back into balance through songs and prayers because the sound is really a healing sound. I think other cultures have sounds that are for meant for healing. Yeah. 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 I was going to say it made me think of, because you talk about, it has some repetitive quality to it, sort of like the weaving mm-hmm. as well, right? So it's it's almost very meditative. Studies on medicine has shown that meditation does actually allow the mind to regain a very restful state in a way that sleep doesn't even allow. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. And also just being in a community where everybody's come together for a one single purpose, and being surrounded by that sound, which reinforces the idea of having community, mm-hmm. makes you feel very safe. Mm-hmm. And I think also for the patient, it makes the patient feel like everyone has come for that purpose to help me heal. Yeah. You know, they're here participating in this ceremony mm-hmm. so that I can heal. Yeah. So you really become a part of everyone else, a part of, part of your family and your extended family, and mm-hmm. there's that love mm-hmm. that they bring and that's what I think these ceremonies are also a way to show the community's love for the patient because we love you Mm -hmm. you know we're coming here to sing and pray for you and with you Mm -hmm. and we're expressing that through what we're doing here right right. and in that that's something that's so missing in modern society right it's very especially in city like Phoenix, for instance, where it's five million and growing, you can feel lonely very easily, yes. feel isolated. So mm-hmm. it's nice to be able to go into that community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that kind of struck me when I first moved here to Phoenix was all these walls that were put around homes. You know? Oh yes. I mean, I bought a house <laughs> with a wall around it. Right, right. Back home, on the Navajo Nation homeland, you don't see walls mm-hmm. around homes. You know, some of the people live way out. And they have a lot of space around them. And then just coming here in Phoenix, that was such a contrast mm-hmm. to see, you know, walls going up or walls already in place. Right. 
And coming from the other direction, because I'm from New York, to me, is you actually get a lot more room within those walls. So yes, there there are much more, I would say, gated communities than in New York. New York isolates itself by just having so many buildings, but here you see more property surrounded by walls, but within the property you get so much space so that it, it's interesting to see, like coming from two different perspectives, seeing yeah. this phoenix and how it manifests itself. Yeah, and I think within those walls you also have a certain amount of privacy too. Mm, yeah, yeah. There's the walls of each, do you call them teepees? Is this all those homes that the, yeah traditional yeah yeah of the Great Plains yeah teepees, yeah. but that's not what Navajos use. Is it? No, our homes are round. We have round homes that are made out of earth and logs. Okay. And each tribe has a different architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, the teepees are from the tribes from the Great Plains, and mm -hmm. their homes are more mobile. Yeah. So they can take them down and travel. They used to do that a long time ago before the reservation system. Yeah. Navajo people now use those teepees to hold ceremonies, too. Yeah. Yeah. So Navajo nations, traditionally, I, I thought you were more nomadic as well, or is that is that more from after colonialism? We were not so much nomadic. I think earlier we were nomadic because our stories of the ancestors migrating from different parts of the, this country on down to um, Canyon de Chez or Tseye, which is up on the reservation, and then settling and then coming in contact with the uh, Pueblo people. Mm -hmm. And after they came into contact with the Pueblos, who were a settled group of people, so their architecture is a lot different. They have right. these homes that are built, and they don't move. The stories are about how these first contact, the Navajos and the Pueblos came into contact, and the Pueblos taught the Navajos agricultural practices mm -hmm. so that the Navajos didn't necessarily have to go out and gather food every day, they could grow their own crops like mm -hmm. the Pueblos did. Mm -hmm. But they still, you know, went out for game and, mm -hmm. and brought that back. But I think after that, the homes became more permanent. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. not an anthropologist, but um, these are just stories from what I learned also being at Diné College. Mm -hmm. Just the Navajo homes, they became, they're round and they, they don't move, they just stay in one spot. So. Navajo people are people that like a lot of space around them, I think. Mm -hmm. you know, they don't like to be cramped up next to you know, a neighbor. Yeah. So they did have a lot of space around them. Then later on, after the reservation system, then the homes were HUD houses and rectangular and square homes. Mm -hmm. And then now you see two-story homes, too, mm -hmm. on the reservation. But there's always usually a hogan there, too. A hogan? Yeah, the Navajo home. Uh, the Hogan, that the okay. round house, yeah. Okay. So you mentioned the Binet College. Can anyone go there and take courses? Anyone can go, and they do. There's a lot of people that come from uh, other uh, countries. Oh, um, nice. They go to either Dinette College, and there's also another one, uh, Navajo Tech University in Crown Point, New Mexico. Okay. And at the college, there are a lot of courses on... Navajo language, Navajo philosophy, Navajo culture, Navajo mm -hmm. arts. So I think that's one of the things that attract students from other parts of the world because mm -hmm. this is an education that you don't get in Western culture. Like yeah. I took a <laughs> class, it was called Navajo philosophy, and I remember the instructor would be talking about Navajo culture, and, and then he'd say, 
And now I'm going to sing you a song. <laughs> and he'd sing a Navajo song, you know, right, and we'd right, just sit right. there listening. And I thought, you would never get this in a Western <laughs> education. Yeah, no. I enjoyed that so much because mm-hmm. it was home. That's my spirit there, grounded in that Navajo world, you know, and so mm-hmm. I really enjoyed being there during the summer. Mm-hmm. It's really nice to have those institutions and to be able to perpetuate the language and the culture and to have a formal way of learning it for people both outside and inside the community. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's why precisely those schools were built mm-hmm. so that an Avalon nation would be able to teach culture, language, and history, and the arts to the next generation so mm-hmm. that we would not leave it behind. You know, we would bring it into our lives. We would be immersed into those teachings. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was a very good foresight of, you know, what the people who founded that were thinking about. So that was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As always, I always share one of my poems, and that's that shares a theme with yours. It's actually from your poem, your line about the shapes that your grandmother is weaving into into being, the geometric designs, the balance, and it actually reminded me of the design on a dress that I got in Uganda, and it reminded me of this. Um, my trip to the tailors, and where I actually wrote a poem about the tailors, especially that has these beautiful designs and such. But the self-destructive elements and the moth madness made me think of my other poem about my tailor experience, which, as you can read, it's not the most you know calming of experiences, mm-hmm. and it does remind me a lot about how we as peoples self-destruct even as we are wanting to relate to each other mm-hmm. even as we are wanting to get rid of negative experiences in a way we perpetuate them by acting in a self-destructive manner mm-hmm. so that's why i picked my poem which is wish fulfillment so mm-hmm. i'll read that you breathed out a wish to the universe asking for soothsayers to pay homage Exhausted from negotiating the maze of subterfuge, stratagems squandered on navigating daily living, wasting away standards you've watched crumbling. I come bearing my heart in bleeding flush. Monetary rates fluctuate while principles retaining their intrinsic valuation. You retract in suspicion, claiming to only traffic in that which never tarnishes, while your hands rifle through my pockets in search of gold nuggets. I hesitate to stay. You have your reasons. We're all built on past experiences, though I feel the pain from your scraping fingernails. Maybe my heart is made of a different matter. Maybe it's been spoiled by the privilege of legal assurances. But now I feel it becoming anemic as new cuts are made before old ones have the time to heal. Perhaps I found you in search of new material, one with the tinsel strength to endure all the lows lowering without tearing. Perhaps your wish was just a test to see who is listening, 
lonely each our universe propelled by terms ungenerous. I tend to write about a lot of negative experiences. My poetry is almost like an exorcism <laughs> to me. Yeah, I think that's what poetry can be, you know, I think yeah. it's a way to, like you said, exorcise the, yeah. the self-destruction or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and to also reflect on what happened, right, in a way that both others can relate to, hopefully, you know, if, if not in exact the same emotions as you felt it, but at least there's a window for them to peer into. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that there was a, a connection to mine, and I thought I saw that too. Mm -hmm. When I was reading this poem, I, my first, I guess, response was that I thought you were writing about a relationship, a maybe a romantic emotional relationship mm -hmm. because you know that maybe that's sort of the first response but I don't think it's necessarily that you're writing about that it's but there is a you and an I which you mm -hmm. mentioned in the first um, five stanzas mm -hmm. and you go back and forth with you first stanza and the second stanza is I and then the third is you and then mm -hmm. I and so forth and you do that all the way you just create the separation and then at the very end, and the very last um, stanza, that then you say our, which mm. I thought was really interesting. You know, you go from I, you and I, you and I to our. Mm. Know, so there's like this, where you've created this vast separation, mm. and then it comes together with our, you know, mm. and it seems like the poem takes a turn, I think, sort of changes at that point. Yeah, I didn't do that on purpose. The one thing that I did do on purpose was to be more reflective of my participation in this relationship that's obviously not going very well, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, pretty much from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned previous to reading the poem, it's, it's about literally my relationship with this tailor that I had at the beginning, which I had hoped to go well. But when I first began to write this poem, it felt like more blaming her for everything, but then I was thinking, but what's my role in it as well? Mm -hmm. And you might have seen that both of us take part in the self-destruction and in the destruction of, in a way, each other and the relationship. Mm -hmm. And again, it's to me, it's kind of sad. It's both from somebody who's experienced it firsthand and also from just as a, from a reader's perspective. It's mm -hmm. like, there could be so many meeting points, right? But it never really gelled together, except for the fact that our universe shared this negative commonality. Like all of our world sharing, you know, unfortunately death mm -hmm. is a negative commonality, but we all share it. Mm -hmm. And that in a way ties our worlds, all of our worlds together. Mm -hmm. I thought also that this you persona seems to place a different value on this relationship, I thought. It's definitely much more monetary, because mm -hmm. you use that language of like monetary rates, mm -hmm. principles, valuation, you use that in one, mm -hmm. in the second stanza. And then you have the next stanza, you mentioned gold nuggets, you know. Mm -hmm. So all of those seem to me, I thought you were building this sense of this you persona's participation in this 
relationship was based more on something that had to do with money mm-hmm. or transactions, yeah. you know, rather than the I persona was basing their participation, I thought, more on like, is more of a human kind of a relationship, mm-hmm. which is in contrast to basing this relationship on monetary value, where the I persona was saying the relationship is built on uh, human experiences like pain, and I can feel your scraping fingernails, and my heart is made of a different matter. You know, mm-hmm. so those are kind of uh, organic, mm-hmm. you know, things. Yeah. And I thought the the I persona was entering this relationship with this organicity. Mm-hmm. where the other person was entering it in terms of monetary value. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, there there is definitely that. It also talks about the differences between what we put out into the world, we say we want from the world, and what our actions actually beget us from the world, right? Because from the beginning, she's saying, I don't want this world that's so transactional. I don't like this particular things that I've experienced yet. When somebody's bringing you the possibility of a different relationship, you go back to the transactional aspect of it. And so the relationship becomes transactional. Mm-hmm. Right? So no matter what, even if you say this is what you want, your actions are saying something different, and therefore you're getting something exactly what you've had before. So you reinforce this idea of this unjust world, of this transactional world, this material world. Mm-hmm. You perpetuate this world. Mm-hmm. which, again, to me, was just very sad. And again, I wanted to talk about my participation in that because I didn't leave. I also wanted something in return. Obviously, I wanted the dresses. I, I wanted the things she was making for me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I thought it could be beyond that, the relationship could be. From somebody who's going into a culture who's wanting to relate to that culture, I thought maybe... There could be something beyond that. Yeah, I guess in a relationship we uh, desire something from that relationship, whether it's love or respect or acceptance, you know. And I felt like by the end of the poem, that wasn't going to happen. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you use, you know, the language of uh, lonely each our universe, which. Mm really suggests that this is a vast separation, Mm, you know, and propelled by terms ungenerous, you know, it just creates a sense of there's really no coming together in this relationship. Yeah, yeah, it it did feel like that. And it it was somewhat painful because I had honestly thought that there would be something else. There would be the possibility of something else that in every day, even if we're going to a store or something, we can still, beyond the transactional nature of going to a store, you might still develop a lasting bond with, uh, let's say, the store owner or something. Because mm-hmm. if they've seen you over and over again, then you become part of their known world, their mm-hmm. association. But there was not, unfortunately, the communal aspect of it never came about. Yeah, it was sad. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. So, Yeah, and another thing that struck me in this poem was these images. You mentioned things like 
bodily injury mm. or being harmed from the eye persona, um, which says from your scraping fingernails and let's see, oh, there's a, a sense of anemic new cuts. Mm. Old ones have the time to heal, so there's a sense of being um, abused or uh, injured or harmed in some way by this uh, relationship. Yeah, yeah. And there's a third character in the poem, which is the outer world, right? Both of us are trying to insulate ourselves from, but we never succeed in that because we never came together. Whereas if we could have come together, maybe we could have achieved that mm -hmm. particular unspoken goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess in any relationship you have goals, mm -hmm. whether they're spoken or not. Yeah. But there are expectations. Yeah. With you know a relationship, yeah, there is, and and a lot of the time, well, especially with these sort of relationship, where it's casual, right, very casual relationship, mm -hmm. it is at its nature transactional. It doesn't have to be, but where you never attain that goal, partly because you never speak of the goal. Yet there's all these subtexts of what people want. For instance, the first stanza when she talked about this, she really did, because she's not Ugandan herself, mm -hmm. and I'm not Ugandan, so we are both strangers in this world, and she talked about how Ugandans do not treat her like with some, some degree of suspicion, as they did me, mm -hmm. but I have been there much shorter time than her. Mm -hmm. So that, again, that third character enters in, which is this sort of like cruel world <laughs> right, that maybe if we have been able to relate to each other on a higher level, that we would be able to insulate ourselves from that, e even if temporarily. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it sounds like the, this Ugandan woman was being treated um, with suspicion mm -hmm. by uh, the people in that community, and it seems like she turned that on you. Yeah, yeah, she was perpetuating what she experienced, which in many ways, victims of abuse often turn around and abuse others because this is the world they know and this is the world they perpetuate. Yeah. So, and I, I, in writing this poem, I was also asking myself, how am I perpetuating what I've learned from my past relationships that, you know, I give a hint in the poem is also not the most pleasant of uh -huh. and also has some abusive elements to it. Mm -hmm. So my larger question with the poem is, how do we get out of these relationships when we unconsciously almost just keep perpetuating it? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so how did, what, did you come up with any resolution about that or any thoughts? Well, for my personal life, I've realized Unfortunately, quite recently, because, you know, if I realized this earlier, it could save me a lot of pain, but um, that I was perpetuating certain things like not appreciating people who were good to me or not even being able to recognize people who are good to me because that's not what I've been taught to recognize. Mm -hmm. So I have made a determination for some years now to pay extra attention to that to put more time into appreciating people who are decent to me, who are good to me, mm -hmm. 
and who also are decent themselves. Not, you know, I don't want to be good to people just because they're good to me, but also because they're, they have a certain upstanding character in themselves. Mm -hmm. So those two criteria, because previously I have spent more of my time trying to placate and to please people who didn't appreciate me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. which I think I've, I feel like this particular world that we live in teaches us that in things like celebrity worship, for mm -hmm. instance. Right. Because they can never return our love. It's never a mutual, it's never a two-way street. Right. Uh -huh. So I'm trying to recognize that in my own life. But whenever I encounter this in other people, it's always painful. At the very last stanza, you said, perhaps your wish was just a test to see who's listening. Is that what you were thinking about when you were writing this, that, that um, this person, that was their worldview of a relationship in terms of what you were doing, that that would never change? I don't know that that would never change because I think with self-reflection, with the desire to change, anyone can change at any stage in their lives. Again, it requires an A, recognition and B, willingness. At the point that I had the encounter with her, I don't think she was at that point. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what in her life might happen that would bring her to that point. And I also wrote the last stanza to wonder about people like that in that situation mm -hmm. if they really mean what they say when they say i don't like the world i live in i wish it would change when their actions actually perpetuate that right uh -huh. so that's why i was like oh maybe you just want attention yeah i think in order to create change in oneself i think you have to be self-reflective mm -hmm. you know you have to examine i think your own self like you're saying in the poem about the I and the we, there's a separation, but and what was my participation in all of this, you mm -hmm. know, and did I help create this, yeah. you know, and so I think when we talk about people changing, I feel like a person can't change unless they look, examine themselves, you know, yeah. look at their own behavior, look at their own history and their motivations, and, you know, maybe there are things in there that would be difficult to change, yeah. you know. And I can think of a very good example of that right now. <laughs> <laughs> do tell, do tell, share. You know, it just, you know, what's going on now in politics, you know. Mm. Um, there's a lot of that. I think that's one of the things, that, you know, it's really interesting to ask yourself is, what is my participation in all of this? Mm. If I'm being abused or uh, I'm not being respected and, or, you know, I'm being harmed in some way, what is my participation in this, right. you know? And so I think that, you know, that's perhaps what happens in cases where people stay in relationships. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard in, in yeah. relationships, right? Because I, I almost feel like this watching what's going on in politics now, as you mentioned, I feel like a lot of people would rather stick with it than to admit that they made a choice mm -hmm. for this person to be in their lives. Mm -hmm. And that is the hardest part to admit to. Yeah. It's going to be painful, but then you can move on from the pain. Mm -hmm. And that takes a um, certain amount of courage, too. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. In terms of 
you know, the poems are mine and yours. I think, you know, we mentioned earlier that there was some uh, link between the two poems. And what I saw in yours was there was a sense of disharmony mm. and tension yeah. in your poem. And my poem also talks about that through the symbol of the moth. Yeah. That there's uh, disharmony in the world and you have to be careful and, you know. Yeah. I feel like yours has that um, a certain amount of remedy to it, right? Mine's sort of just leaving it, be like, here, throw up. Look at the throw up. <laughs> you know? And sometimes life is like that. There's no ready solution to it. Yes, sometimes uh-huh. you just have to be forced to look at the throw up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look at the ugliness of yeah. yeah. And I think that's another thing that we have to get comfortable with is that solutions are not going to come at the, not always at the time that we want it to, no matter how hard we try. Sometimes it involves just sitting back and looking at the ugliness that it is Mm -hmm. and to say, well, okay, let's reflect on that. And sometimes it takes time to look at it, dissect it, and not really deconstruct it and understand it before we can actually come to a real solution rather than a surface solution where mm-hmm. you're just sort of covering it and things still continue to fester, mm-hmm. which I feel like has been more American history. It's been, been through this covering over, covering over, covering yes. over. Uh-huh. And things haven't healed because look at how easily we can be divided. Mm-hmm. Our history has been covered over. I mean, like you mentioned uh, that you went to the Heard Museum and you've never heard about the boarding schools and Not the purpose yeah. for building them. And that's something I've heard many, many times from when I was teaching and students would write that in their journals that they were required to write and they would say, I never heard about this. Mm-hmm. Why didn't I hear about this? And some of them would be very emotionally moved by that some of them are mm-hmm. angry and some yeah. are like you know why questioning you know their own history that was omitted in their books mm-hmm. in, the, in their classes yeah yeah we do feel betrayed by that denial of what happened by that exclusion of what happened because this is part of america mm-hmm. the good and the ugly yes and, and we have to look at it as that rather than just saying oh it's always been fantastic we've always lived by these principles we never did these were aspirational in principles that we have not lived up to so far and you know there's then becomes a sense of invisibility then of certain kinds of history that is not openly there in terms of native history i think you know this country had a genocide of Mm -hmm. native peoples continues and continues yes and because if you look at just the native peoples that were in this country of course we don't really know how many people were here at the time of contact but those numbers plummeted because Mm -hmm. of the wars and diseases and the trauma and america has never acknowledged that there was a genocide in this country Mm -hmm. we know a little bit more now because i think native scholars are starting to make that more present, make that more known in the work that they do and mm-hmm. the research that they do. But I know like even in this country, I feel like Native peoples are pretty much invisible. There are 
Our stories are not really covered in the news. When, Except maybe, for November. November. Yes, November is the <laughs> only time. And Veterans Day. Sometimes. Yeah. For people like myself, I feel like in my writing, I think that's when I sometimes it comes out that perhaps I'm making the invisible visible. Mm. You know, by using my own language, mm -hmm. using terms in there, or placing stories of time immemorial. Mm -hmm. In my poems, it's a way of acknowledging that I was denied mm -hmm. you know, when I was mm -hmm. growing up, even though I had storytellers around me, I knew some of these stories and I had the language, but I was not aware of how I could use those same stories and write about you know, my stories the way other ethnic groups have done, like Toni Morrison, mm -hmm. you know, who wrote about her community or mm -hmm. other some of these other uh, ethnic writers who go back to their own communities mm. and write about those stories and I feel like uh, in a sense I'm playing catch-up. Yeah, there's that and I feel like like Toni Morrison and other POC writers who talk about their community to go back to the story of being denied that some of it now becomes this is the only story you can tell mm -hmm. uh, which is troubling to me as well because whether it's a positive or a negative or in between stereotype, it's still a stereotype. And that's one of the problems I, I have with the current publishing world mm -hmm. is that if you are a writer of a certain community, they expect something. And if you don't give them that something, your voice will not be heard because you're not meeting up to their expectations of who you're supposed to be, whereas you're just you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that has happened to me. Like, if I write something, there's this expectation that it should be in my own language. Mm -hmm. And I may not want to write in my native language. Mm -hmm. I might want to write in English or mm -hmm. code switch. You know? mm -hmm. So sometimes I feel like those kinds of expectations are placed on me. Mm -hmm. Or my work is interpreted not from a Navajo perspective, but from a you know, Western perspective. Mm -hmm. and it makes me feel like I don't really want to put my work out there mm -hmm. sometimes for mm -hmm. that reason, because there's all these different interpretations or expectations on my work. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I talked about this with Tanner Minner, who's also he's a Louisiana Creole, but he's also um, from a Native Nation there. His name, ah, terrible. <laughs> I don't want to mess up. We talked about that quite a bit. That there's no genuine relating, there's no genuine trying to understanding. Part of it is that we don't take the time to do that. Part of it is that our modern world doesn't give us the time to do that. And you kind of see this come up yesterday. I don't know if you saw the debates. I did. Yeah. Uh -huh. There is this uh, both Cory Booker and Kamala Harris was talking about this genuine, relating, authentic connections. But how can you have that if you don't have time? If it's only a year away? I mean, are the candidates really going to go into every... Even just talking about solely the African-American voting bloc, are they really going to go into every black church and, and have a sit down with everyone? Or is that really going to come off as authentic mm -hmm. at this point? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it takes time. We got to make time for it. Mm -hmm. We have to do it now because even if Trump and his elk never existed, this problem has been here. 
this problem it's been around for people like somebody like Trump and and these people who are helping him to exploit for all this time. And if we don't heal it, it's going to continue. At some point, the fabric of our society will tear by itself without somebody like Trump tearing at it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we've reached that point already. That's what makes me afraid. Mm -hmm. You know, I was watching the hearings too, and I feel like something terrible is happening in this country, and we don't know the full story, you know, and the people that are testifying are coming up with their part of the story, and then someone else comes up with another story. The way it seems it's turning out is there's the good guys and the bad guys, and then there are the enemies, and I feel like Trump and his cronies are the enemies of the United States. And I feel like they are working um, in ways, in insidious ways, that we don't always see. But when all the, during this process of the testimonies, I feel like more of the picture is being filled in by what different, by different people who were involved in this um, bribery, quid pro quo, you know. And it's really scary mm -hmm. what, you know, what could happen if Trump is exonerated, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That is, to me, is very scary because it just opens all kinds of doors. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, we've seen him, like, he's one of the luckiest people alive yeah, really like yeah. the, all the breaks that we've seen him being given all the breaks that we know he's gotten since being born yeah basically. exactly like he's lived yeah. a charm life this is probably the most difficult patch he's had to live through <laughs> apart from whatever psychological forces that's made him what he is now right because part of me actually do feel sorry for him for for turning out to be what he is knowing a little bit about his family dynamics from you know what i read it's it's like it's so sad because he has some talents that he could have used in different fields mm -hmm. that he you know the same as hitler right yeah does somebody who has obvious talents in certain areas of life yet because of all the forces, confluence of forces, and his own choices as well, have become the catalyst for so much suffering. Mm -hmm. For me, it seems like uh, if there's any sense of feeling sorry for him, it's that he was never taught, it seems, by anyone, humility or compassion or empathy. Mm -hmm. He didn't learn that, I think, as a child, or maybe he wasn't even shown that. No, yeah. And so he grows up to be who he is now. Yeah. Hurting everyone, you know, rolling over people. And, you know, once he's through with them, he just throws them away, discards them, you know. Yeah. There's no sense of compassion or empathy for uh, the families of migrants from Mexico and locking up children and creating a world in America that other countries now are not going to be trustful 
of the yeah. United States, and now with you. Um, but which is like kind of ironic for somebody who's from Native nations to say that, because you know America is, has always been about never keeping its promises, yeah. <laughs> like ripping up its treaties and just saying, "Well, I feel like drawing up another treaty. Here, sign it." Yeah. Even though you know they're not going to keep their word. So America now is finally showing its true face to the outer world that it's been showing to the Native nations for all of yes. these hundreds of years. Right. And that's what I mean, you know, because the, the boarding schools are pretty much locking up kids. Yeah. Locking the kids up and taking them away from their parents. Yeah. We've already had that history. Yeah. And America, in a lot of ways, you know, is, has tried to put itself out as a beacon to other countries. So. That's the ideal, but as a Native person, we know that that is marred because of our own experience of being colonized people yeah. and being people whose lands were taken, who was expected to become Americanized and uh, through you know the boarding schools and parochial schools and you know all of that. You know we survived that though. Mm. We're seeing this all over again. Yeah, we're seeing all this history repeat itself. Yeah. Which is in itself very traumatizing. And, yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, just to conclude, can you tell the listeners where they can follow you or where they might see you read? I'll be reading at the uh, Desert Nights Rising Stars. Oh, February. Yes, okay. uh, at ASU. Yeah, so I have a um, poetry reading. February 22nd at 10.15. It's at the Carson Ballroom in Old Main on the uh, main campus, Tempe. I also am a librettist. I don't know if you knew that, but the libretto for what I wrote, Nahasan in the Glittering World, which means Mother Earth in the Glittering World, Mm -hmm. is going to be performed in Grenoble, France in April. So if anyone can is in France or near Grenoble, <laughs> I would like to. <laughs> or you can grow wings. You know, if you can grow wings, you can fly over there uh, and nice. go to the performance. So that's in Grenoble in April seventeenth. And I have a website, lauratohe.com, T-O-H-E, and I have a Twitter account that I just opened and. I'm still learning how to use it. <laughs> so I'm getting a little more up, caught up into the 21st century. And I have Facebook, too. So. Ah, okay. So both Twitter and uh, Facebook are under Laura Tohi, the entire name? Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. okay. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me. Of course. It's lovely. I really enjoyed it. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and via social media on Twitter, Instagram, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.